Thank you so much. Good morning. If one was to pick a chapter in the Old Testament that might be called the pinnacle, the pivotal chapter of all the Old Testament, I think you would probably want to include Isaiah chapter 53 among those you'd be considering. Here we find in this incredible chapter that God had ordained to be penned eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ walking the soil of Palestine. Such a descriptive analysis of what Christ would be doing and how he would go about doing it. I'd like you to find your way there because we're going to use this chapter as a means to prepare our hearts for receiving the bread and receiving the cup of communion this morning. Some have called this the fifth gospel, Isaiah chapter 53. What I'd like to do is to pick up on what is known as the fourth stanza among five stanzas that are found in this, in this incredible description of Jesus Christ's sufferings. It begins in Isaiah 52 and verse 13 and carries through all of chapter 53. But here we find in that fourth stanza, beginning in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, three verses that I think are going to equip us very powerfully to be able to receive bread and cup in a way that honors Jesus. In verse 7, you and I are told he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Three power pack verses, part of five stanzas that describe in minute detail the way in which Jesus Christ would minister. And if nothing grips your heart more than this thought, I'd be surprised. Again, this was written 8th century B.C. In the 700s before Jesus Christ walked the soil of Palestine, notice the degree, the distinctiveness of the way in which his ministry unfolds before your very eyes. Astounding. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we want these verses now to speak to our hearts in each of these services. We want to be drawn into your presence through the work of the Holy Spirit, who inspired the text we're looking at today. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here again to see Jesus and him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. 
Dr. Mitch Glazer is the president of Chosen People Ministries, the oldest ministry in the United States of outreach to the Jewish people. Dr. Glazer was raised in a nominal Orthodox Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York. In the 1960s, he rebelled, ran away from family, headed off to California, where he found himself in a situation where Jewish people who had come to Jesus as their Messiah wanted to share the good news with Mitch. As he examined all the various spiritualities being offered to him at that time, a so-called spiritual smorgasbord, as he describes it, he eventually came to the conclusion that Jesus was his Messiah. But along the way, prior to that point, when he would begin to lay down the gauntlet for those people wanting to share the gospel with him, here's what he tells us. If you are Jewish, whether or not you are observant, you probably have a sense of identification with the history of our people. You are likely reluctant to do anything that you believe would cause you to step away from or dishonor that heritage. That is what crossed my mind when someone suggested to me that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. I thought back then, quote, you will never get me to believe that unless you demonstrate it to me from within the Jewish world. Show it to me from our own sacred writings, the Old Testament. And then I'll look at it more closely. Don't quote the New Testament to me. Unquote. Okay, Mitch. We'll accept that challenge because God has accepted that challenge. For an eight centuries prior, we find now the gauntlet being laid in Isaiah, where in chapter 52, verse 13, on through the 53rd chapter, you and I are given five stanzas of intense description of the one who would come to die for our sins. And he was a Jew. What I want to do with you is to look very carefully at three verses found in verse 7, 8, and 9. This fourth stanza of this musical composition by Isaiah, so to speak. And I want to draw out with you this morning three means by which Jesus Christ submitted to God the Father's will and allowed to speak our hearts in prepping us for bread and cup. Now look very carefully what's coming our way in verse 7, because we're going to offer the first means in this way. The number one, Christ submitted to God the Father's will through his trials. Let the verse begin to unpack itself. In verse 7, you and I are told that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shivers is silent, so he did not open 
his mouth. Now, what is being offered here is a description both physical as well as legal pertaining to the way in which Messiah now is being challenged in life. You and I are told both physically and legally he was oppressed. He was afflicted. What stands out to us at this point, when we begin to reflect, for example, on the various trials of Jesus Christ, is that he would be pushed, he would be challenged, and he would be beaten as he made his way through the various trials described in the Gospels. He would stand before Annas, the ex-high priest of the Jews, in John 18. He would be taken then to Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, as well then as the Sanhedrin. After the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was worthy of death, but they lacked the legal right to put him to death in the Roman society. They ushered him off then to the Roman governorship, Pilate, followed by Herod. I'm back to Pilate again. In order to be able to capture the scene, look at this incredible painting that was commissioned some time back by an Austrian painter. His name is Mahali Mancoxi. And as it appears on the screen now, notice that Jesus Christ is standing before Pilate. He has already been beaten. He has been wearied during the course of the night. He has been oppressed, and he has been afflicted. But I want you to notice what comes next. What does it say? Yet he did not open his mouth. The natural tendency of humanness is to become self-defensive. I have suffered injustice. I have been grossly, I've been treated grossly unfairly. And now in the weariness of this night, I've been pushed through illegal trials to stand before a Roman governor. And as he stands before a Roman governor, this governor has received delegated authority from God from above. Astoundingly, the Sovereign One, Jesus Christ, stands before this one with delegated authority. You would think then the natural tendency was to pull rank in some way, some shape, some form to be able to say, I am the second member of the Trinity. I am the one of ultimate authority. But what does he say? Nothing. There is silence. The silence is deafening. Isaiah pauses at this point. He's looking for some analogy. He knows that the typical Jew understands the pastures 
of greater Palestine. He walks them out into the pasture land and describes Messiah like this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent. And they would know what he is speaking of at this point, as they had observed many of them, the manner by which sheep respond to the shearer. There is no resistance. The sheep is silent. And so for a second time now, and notice then the emphasis here, for a second time, Isaiah then reiterates, He did not open his mouth. Can we get some New Testament fulfillment, we're wondering? Check out with me Matthew chapter 27, verse 12 through 14. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, listen to this. He gave no answer. Question. How do you respond when you are treated unfairly? Ponder the people in your life history that have treated you unjustly. Re-examine this. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Not even to a single charge. To the great amazement of the governor. Look at the evangelistic impact of the silence before accusation. Ask yourself, why, Jesus, why? But Christ has already revealed sufficient truth to Caiaphas. And then, of course, to Pilate. On to Herod. They knew sufficient truth. And yet resisting it, what we find here now is that once God has revealed sufficient quantities of truth, there is a quietness that descends. And here is Jesus now. And there is utter amazement because Pilate most likely has a lot of experience with people who are being placed on trial. And here is one so secure in who he is. He sees no need at this point to be able or responsible to have to defend himself. So we ask ourselves the question, why? To which Peter, 
would respond in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Question. Are you entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly? Do you have that degree of faith in God the Father in the way in which he is working out his plan through you and in you and for you? Do you see then what I will call the great submission of the second member of the Trinity to the first member of the Trinity, where he now, eight centuries later, so conscious is he of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, that in the midst of his pain and weariness, he fulfills this verse. And Pilate is amazed. Are people amazed by your testimony? Verbal or nonverbal? When you have been treated unjustly? There's a second great submission here. Because not only did this this take place through his trials in verse 7, physical as well as legal, but secondly, it takes place through his death. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Mark that phrase, taken away. In the Hebrew, it carries with it the idea of to be forcibly hurried, to be forcefully rushed. Eight centuries later, Jesus Christ will be forcibly hurried, forcibly rushed out of the Gethsemane scene so that the illegalities can begin to unfold in the Jewish court systems before the general population that seemed to be in favor of Jesus begins to hear about it. He is forcefully heard, forcefully rushed. You're beginning to get the picture in your mind then of what's unfolding here And now Jesus, while he was in Gethsemane, was already anticipating, because of Isaiah 53, the the march of the soldiers, which is about to interrupt the intimacy of his moment with God the Father, where his soul is agitated because of what's occurring at this point. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. So he's forcefully removed from that setting and now forcefully placed between and among those, among the religious authorities that are looking for a way to have Jesus Christ condemned. And then, 
And then this question is posed by Isaiah in verse 8. And who can speak of his descendants? If you and I were to dig deep into the original language, it would carry with it the idea of who among his colleagues of that generation would speak up for him. Which leads then to another scene, again by McCoxie, that appears on the screen here. Because what he will now do pictorially is to present us of Jesus Christ standing before a crowd. Could that appear, please? And as it appears, look at the statement, eke homo, in other words, from the Latin, behold the man. Ponder the crowd. There ought to be somebody that stands up and says, I have seen his miracles. I heard the story about that that young boy that was healed. About that blind individual that was given sight. About the tremendous mercy that was shown to various people. There ought to be a cry somewhere from that crowd. Someone to stand up and say, this is unjust. Now, as Jesus, in the second of that trilogy by Mukoxi, of paintings pointing towards the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, stands before that crowd, he would know eight centuries prior that nobody would stand up for him. There's an aloneness to injustice. But ponder the significance and the painful experience of not only being treated unjustly, but to have absolutely no one there to support you. We love our support groups in this American culture. The support groups vanished. And he stands alone. Who can speak up? Isaiah. We know the answer. No one. We need another fulfillment, don't we? And so we allow for our minds to go to Matthew 27. When in verse 39, 40, and 50, we, we allow for this Jewish writer, Matthew, to pen these these verbal thoughts. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. You hear the sarcasm? Can you picture the cynicism? Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And yet Matthew would tell us, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now allow for your minds to go and your eyes to go towards the second part of that eighth verse where you and I are now informed, for he was cut off from the land of the living. 
The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life is cut off from the living. But then we are told, and this is critically important, because here the idea again of the substitute lurches before us. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It's the idea of the substitute. In the movie Seven Pounds, Will Smith develops an elaborate plot by which he's going to atone for an accident that he is responsible for. That he caused by texting on his Blackberry while driving. You see, he plans to die in such a way that will enable him to give his organs to a worthy individual or worthy individuals. And so Will Smith begins to work out his own plan of atonement, his own plan of substitution. But he does that by evaluating the character of those whom his death will benefit. I had a sit-down time with some of my family members to talk about this scene. And I wanted to create a contrast between what I will call secular atonement and sacred atonement. Unbiblical atonement and biblical atonement. In seven pounds, what we find is that Will Smith is overcome by guilt and guiltiness. And so he wants to offer himself as a gift. Contrast that with Jesus. While Smith's character is guilty, yet wants to offer himself as a gift, Jesus Christ is guiltless and offers himself as the gift. In this culture, looking for alternatives to God's plan for atonement, God's plan for substitution, all other plans are based upon guiltiness, not guiltlessness as the source of the gift. But not only should you consider the source, guilty or guiltless, Jesus guiltless, consider the recipients. Will Smith's character is looking around for those who are worthy to receive the gift. The Bible, on the other hand, teaches us there is none righteous, no, not one. You see the contrast? In Smith's character's case, it is the guilty looking to gift those who are, in his estimation, good. But in the Bible, it is the guiltless who is willing to offer himself as the gift to those who are not good. As Paul would put it, there is none good. No, Highlander, as you're about to raise an objection, Not even you. No, not one. Now, do you see the contrast? Guiltless gift for the not good. 
compared to that movie. Guilty, the source, gift for the supposed good. And now you have the contrast of atonement in our world today. And now you're able to contrast biblical Christianity with all the other false spiritualities in this world today. There is one true substitution. Everything else is false substitution. And now you go back to eight centuries prior to Jesus. Earthly ministry. And Isaiah picks up on this. And Dr. Mitch Glazer focused upon this. As now he is drawn to this statement, for the transgression of my people, we have transgressed. For this purpose, he was stricken. But that's not all, is it? Because you've got a third You've got a third means here. It's in verse 9. Because we have also recognized that Christ submitted to God the Father's will through his burial. Through his burial. Through his trials, verse 7. Through his death, verse 8. Through his burial, verse 9. In verse 9, it begins, he was assigned a grave with a wicked. Mark that word assigned. This was the religious authority's plan. Josephus, the Jewish historian, informs us that anyone who had been accused of blasphemy would not be allowed to have what in the eyes of their culture to be a proper burial. Such a person would be viewed as an outcast, and so their burial place would be in an outcast setting an unknown grave. But what I want you to see now is that God is sovereign. Religiosity is not. God breaks in, and this was promised eight centuries prior. Look at the next phrase. And with the rich in his death. And you say, Gary, Help me that with that one. What do you mean by that? Look at Matthew 27, verse 57 through 60, appearing on the screen right now. Because as evening approached, there came a what? Rich man. Beautiful. A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. This was a highly esteemed man in that culture. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And now you see, once again, incredible contrast between the human strategy and the divine strategy. Not only in the realm of substitution in verse 8, but also even in terms of burial, verse 9, God overrules again. 
And so now, even though their assignment was to have Jesus Christ positioned in a grave where nobody would notice, Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps not even fully cognizant of Isaiah 53, but under the inspiration of the authoritative workings of God, now makes his move towards Pilate and then positions this body in his grave. And this is also fulfilled. Astounding. What does this do for your faith when life seems so unfair? I have friends who are rabbis in Chicago, and particularly in New York. They don't know Jesus yet. Yet. But one of their arguments is that Isaiah 53 pertains to the history of the Jewish people who have been oppressed and afflicted. What I want you to see is how this stanza ends. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Nobody can make that statement. There was no deceit in his mouth. We're not talking an ethnic group. We are talking Messiah, to which Peter would nod his head as a true blue Jew, and then commenting, in essence, upon Isaiah 53 and his masterful work in First Peter in chapter 2, where you and I find in verse 21 these words, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Substitution. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's Isaiah 53, verse 9. You'll never get me to believe that unless you demonstrate it to me from within the Jewish world, the gauntlet's been laid down. Show it to me from your own sacred writings, and then I'll look at it more closely. Don't quote the New Testament to me. So what does Peter, the New Testament writer, do? Quotes the Old Testament back to them. Astounding. And so, Father, we allow these verses, just three verses, to prep our hearts for the bread and cup that remind us of the one who submitted himself to your will and died in our place so that we can have eternal life, eternal life in Jesus and Him only. Amen.